All right, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That is correct. I did say Thessalonians. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, or if you forgot where that book in the Bible is, it's on page 986. And that's one of the reasons that we're going to be preaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, I can't tell you the last time I heard a sermon from 1 Thessalonians. And honestly, when I think of the books of the Bible, it's probably the one I know the least about. And so as we learn together, it really will be a learning together um, as we work through this lesser-known book. As we begin, I want to talk a little bit about what we know about the Thessalonian church. And to do that, I want to reference a book called Church in Hard Places, written by two pastors named Mez McConnell and Mike McKinley. And the reason that they wrote this book was that they felt and wanted to consider how God was calling them and other Christians to be planting, revitalizing, and growing churches that reach the economically and socially downtrodden. The idea is that there are some places that because of external forces, whether that be the social climate or the economic climate, can make doing church a little more difficult. And in particular, this book looks at how poorer places, the, the economically lower places that we live, that there are certain challenges and how to overcome them. And wanting to, wanting to have churches not just in the nice places. And in one sense, there is an analogy to the church of Thessalonica. So the Thessalonian church was the church in the city of Thessalonica. And I won't make you say it out loud too much. But there was a lot of difficulty at the beginning of this church. When this church was born, it was in a very difficult climate. If you want to read this later, I'm going to be summarizing a little bit from Acts chapter 17, which is where we get the story of the Thessalonian church. And I'm going to be summarizing a little bit of that, but also doing, doing some quoting. Now in Acts 17, and looking at the rest of what we know about Paul's journeys, it seems like the Apostle Paul spent about a month in the city of Thessalonica. Not very long, but a decent amount of time to build relationships, as we'll see later in the book. But there was a reason he was only able to stay about a month. Let me read briefly from Acts chapter 17. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul, and you see this pattern as we studied uh, the book of Acts maybe about a year ago now, that if there was a Jewish community, he would go to that community first. And he would use what we call the Old Testament to say, look, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And then usually some would believe, but most would not, and therefore he went to the Gentile or the non-Jewish populations of that city. And here it's a similar pattern. He goes to the Sabbath, and some were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks. These were people who were not full converts to Judaism, but were non-Jewish, but would attend services or were interested in the things of Judaism. And because of this, we later read in Acts 17 that there was jealousy among the majority of the Jews in Thessalonica. And you can read the specifics in Acts chapter 17, but there is a riot. That is started, and the result of that riot is that a guy named Jason and some other believers were brought in front of the city leaders for a trial and needed to be uh, bailed out at the end of the story. But let me read to you briefly on the charge that was given to Paul and the other believers. This is from Acts 17, verses 6 and 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the charge was treason. And it seems like the jealous Jewish population was trying to get the new believers and Paul and Silas in trouble with the authorities by claiming these guys are treasonous against Caesar. Now, if you were in Caesar's empire back then, the thing you didn't want to do was have an unruly city because then Caesar would come in and he was not known for his soft touch. So, what happens in this time is that there is a bail set for Jason so he can leave freely. But then Paul and Silas are sent away by night to the next town of Berea. Now if that wasn't enough, we le read a few verses later that Jews from Thessalonica follow Paul and Silas to Berea and cause another commotion, and so therefore Paul has to go even further to Athens. Now, come back to Thessalonica. That's how your church started. People were so upset with you, they started a riot. When this church started, it met in a home and then at the Progressive Club building. No riots, at least that I'm aware of. I'm looking at you, Glenda Michael. But, but again, you can... You see the hostility. You see the tumultuous climate into which this Thessalonian church was born. And you can imagine that that didn't just go away. So one of the things that we're going to see as we study the book of 1 Thessalonians is how do we live as a church when we face difficulties? Now, for our application, we're not going to have to make application to what do we do when there are riots in Green Bank. I sort of want to see a riot in Green Bank now. But, and so there will be different applications, but as I'm going to talk about a little later, what 
difficulties do we face? And there are the same answers that the Thessalonians are given. Our big idea, if you're following along in the outline providing your bulletin, is this. When we stand on the foundation of our salvation, we are able to live out our faith in any circumstances. So let's look at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. As with most of his letters, it begins with a greeting and a prayer. And so let's look at those beginning in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now again, this is a normal way if you look at the other letters of Paul you see that who's writing it is at the beginning, unlike we do it at the end. And Silvanus, just so you know, is another spelling of Silas. So if you're more familiar with that. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, Paul's team, that part of Paul's missionary team, he wasn't just on his own, is riding back to the church in Thessalonian. Grace to you and peace. And after this greeting, again, as is Paul's normal custom in these letters, is to pray for them, or is to tell them how he's praying for them. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the repetition of prayer words here, giving thanks, constantly mentioning you, and the word remembering there is in the context of prayer. This letter is meant to encourage them, and in contrast to what we might call Greek prayer of that time that was self-interested and included an argument with a deity to get what you wanted. This prayer models Christian prayer that puts thanksgiving to God and the interests of others in the first place. And I want to note here, before we continue on, that like we did with John chapter 17, prayers like this in the Pauline epistles are meant to help us grow in our own prayer lives. In fact, there's a great book called Praying with Paul by a Dr. D.A. Carson that if you want to know more about that, I'd encourage you uh, to get. But part of the reason I want us to look at this prayer is not just to see Paul's prayer life, but is an idea that I've come up with, come to before. It's not my own, but it's, I think it's important of what you celebrate, you become. And when Paul begins with saying, we give thanks for these things, this is what he celebrates about them. And he's both thankful for how they've already done it, but in thanking them for doing it, he's trying to get more of it. I don't know if you've ever done this with somebody. Maybe you've done it with your kids. Oh, thank you for cleaning up. Well, the idea is to get them to clean up more. <laughs> and what Paul is going to celebrate about the Thessalonian church, he wants more of it. 
And so we can apply this to our lives. Of This is what we want our lives full of. And I'm going to have three categories here. There are three specific things that he's thankful for, that he wants more of from them. And the first is your work of faith, or as the NIV puts it, your work produced by faith. The idea here is that our faith is living. Our faith is alive. Our faith is active. And while our faith is not created from good works, our faith is lived out in good works. You know, don't put the cart in front of the horse there. Okay? But, as James tells us, faith without works is dead. And so he is thanking God that they not only believe truth, but it actually is lived out in their lives. And when he's saying, this is what I'm thankful for, again, he wants to see more of it. Because of our faith in Jesus, we serve. Because of our faith in Jesus, we do what is right and good. And I'm going to repeat this throughout these three specifics, but when you're thinking of a church that's in a difficult place, or when you're in a difficult place, doing the right thing, doing good works, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. You're not in control of that. What you're in control of is doing what's right and good. And there's something that is, that is restful in I can live out my faith in Christ no matter what. No matter what my neighbors think of me, no matter what my boss is doing to me, I can live out my faith and work the way that God wants me to. Similarly, the second one, their labor of love. There's, there's some similarities here, but I want to look at those similarities and also see the uniqueness of this one. Again, our love is more than words. Our love is more than emotion. Our love, described here, is hard work. Labor here referring to what we might call manual labor, not childbirth. Okay, so... I'm not saying that's not work. I almost stepped in it on that one. Watch out, guys. But the idea is manual labor of love. And what this helps us understand is that what we do is motivated by love. What we do is to be loving. But that also loving can be hard work you're not always going to want to do it. You don't always want to go shovel a ditch in your road. <laughs> but we are called to do the hard work of loving one another. Again, this is what Paul, Paul is like, I'm thankful that you're doing this, i.e., I want you to do it more. There is a grit to the Christian life. There's an error we make when love is only an emotion. Love is only a feeling of butterflies in our gut. 
But what Paul says is it's so much bigger than that. And as a part of being this bigger concept, this bigger category, sometimes it'll be hard work. And we can't be scared of hard work. Love will cost us. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But again, as with the first one, the works of faith, in one sense it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside. I can do my hard work love. It doesn't matter what's going on in the outside culture. That doesn't change that I can love and serve people. It might make it more difficult sometimes. But if you're honest with yourself, love is patient, love is kind. Is, is being patient and kind dependent on what's going on outside of you? I would argue it's not. And again, as you think of what is it like to be the church in difficulty, one of the answers is be committed to the labor of love. Because you can't change that. You can't change all these geopolitical forces. You can't even change your neighbor's mind. But you know what you can do? You can work hard at loving others. There, there's, there's a stress that we put on ourselves when we try to change what we can't change, or we try to control that which we cannot control. I mean, it's just as silly as running outside and yelling at the rain clouds. Which, I mean, if that helps you get stress out, go for it. But I don't recommend it. But again, what can I do? It really helps me to think of the book of Ruth. Now, here's the here's thing. We, we all remember Ruth because of the love story, right? And that's part of it, and that's great. It's a good story. But at the beginning of the book of Ruth, it tells us that that story happens during the time of the judges, which politically and socially was one of the most sinful, wicked, and chaotic times in the history of Israel. But you read the book of Ruth, and unless that was there at the beginning, you would have no idea that that country was in chaos and wickedness. Boaz is working on his farm, and Ruth is picking up grain. That's it. In one sense, it's a very boring story. <laughs> but it also tells us that when our world is in chaos and wickedness, there is an ordinary faithfulness that we're called to. There is, and you see it worked out in the book of Ruth, there is love there is service, there is generosity, there is humility, all of the fruits of the Spirit. 
in a world of chaos, there is an ordinary faithfulness to which we are called. This is what Paul is calling the Thessalonian church to. You may be in a hostile place. You may feel that the world is chaotic. And Paul is saying, work out your faith. Labor in love. Thirdly, third category we have is the steadfastness of hope. Again, the NIV is helpful here. Your endurance inspired by hope. There, there is a perseverance that Paul calls the Thessalonian church to. There's an endurance that they must have living where they live. But it's not their toughness that makes them endure. How are they able to persevere? How are they able to endure? Look at the text. Verse 3. The steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They can persevere not because they're tough, not because they're strong, but because of their hope in Jesus Christ. It is a hope in the present of our salvation in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and the reconciliation of us to God, and a future hope that looks forward to eternal life. And so, as one author puts it, the source of this perseverance was not some inner resolve or personal strength, but their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope they held was not some vague expectation about a better future, but rather a solid confidence rooted in the expectation of Christ's coming. What keeps us going in the hard times? What keeps us going when life is difficult. Central to that is our hope in Jesus Christ. We're reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul celebrates the resolve of this young church in a difficult place and that they have this resolve because of their hope in Christ. Now, as we move to the next part of the text, I just want to give a little note. I hope you noticed those three words, faith, hope, and love. Theologians call those the Pauline triad because they like coming up with fancy names for things. And you can see that in a verse like 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now faith, hope, and love abide. But again, I want us to see that these are for us too. That when we experience difficulty, both internally and externally, that we don't focus on what we cannot change or control, but we focus on living out our faith, working out our love, and finding our steadfastness in the hope of Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5, the rest of our text for today, sort of set a foundation 
for the action talked about in verses 2 and 3. You see, and it, and it leads from the hope there, the hope in Jesus Christ. And in verses 4 and 5, he gets to the foundation of our hope in Christ, and that is our secure salvation. So let's look at verses 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul begins with what he knows. Again, there is a stability, there is a certainness, there is an assurance here in the strength of his language. This is not what he guesses, this is what he knows. That these believers are loved by God and they're chosen by God. Why does Paul describe them this way? One author writes, the purpose of the declaration is to provide assurance and comfort. That again, whatever is going on around you, you come back to these two things. You are loved by God. How easily do we forget the love of God when we experience difficulty? Well, if God really loved me, my life would never be hard. We'd never write that down, but how often do our hearts say it? But that even when life is hard, even when things are difficult, we can hold on to the rock that is the love that God has for us. We are not only loved, we are chosen by God. Our salvation comes from Him, not our performance. Because if it was our performance, we wouldn't have it. And when the Bible talks about being chosen or God choosing, the idea that that is meant to communicate to us is the certainty of it, the safeness of it. Again, I go back to John's Gospel where we are pictured as being in God's hands and no one can take us from his hands. That's a picture of God's choosing of us. That there is a rest you can have when your life is chaotic. Because you are safe in the hands of your Savior. Your soul is safe with God. You are loved and you are chosen. And again, nothing out there can change that. As Paul say in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that's what Paul knows. That's who they are. And how does he know it is verse 5. Paul knows that they are loved by God and chosen by God because they were truly converted by the gospel. Look at verse 5. Because our gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, as we look at some of the details of this, I want to start with the big idea here. And that is, Paul is describing 
that when they heard the message of Jesus Christ died and risen again for our salvation, they were truly converted by it. They did not just take it as another philosophy out there, another truth. They took it as the truth and the way to salvation. And this is what we see in verse 5 where he says, came to you not only in word, but also in power. It wasn't just that Paul was a really good speaker. It wasn't just that they liked what Paul was saying. It reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And we see that word power used in here. Verse 5, but also in power. It came to you in power, meaning it changed you. It transformed you. And in seeing that, the power and the full conviction at the end of verse 5, Paul could see that it was truly the work of the Holy Spirit. That a people that Paul will later call former idolaters in verse 9 of chapter 1, that these former idolaters have become sons and daughters of God. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's going to say this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The way that Paul could know with certainty that these people had come to trust Christ, that they had been transformed by the gospel, was that conversion, was that transformation of their life. And I've shared this story before, but I think it bears sharing again because I think it speaks to this idea of of we can know that someone has come to faith when we see that life transformation. Many of you know I'm going to talk about Stuart Leonard. Stuart Leonard was a member for a couple years before he passed a couple years ago. And when I first met Stuart, he was definitely not a believer. <laughs> and it was obvious. And I've said this to him before, so don't, don't think I wouldn't say this to his face. But as he met with our Geezer Bible study on Mondays, and I was a part of that for a couple of years there, I saw him grapple with the truth of God's word. And I remember him specifically saying to me and Pastor Dave, I hope I go to heaven. By the end of his life, he would tell you, I know I'm going to heaven. And when I spoke at his funeral with the confidence that Paul has with the Thessalonian church, I spoke with that same confidence about Stuart. Not just because he said that, but in that short, relatively short amount of time, the Lord changed that man. Many of you knew him before he came to faith. He was sort of like a Forrest Gump. You were like, there's no way one man could do all those things. 
He could tell you a story. But he became, he became a more loving person. I remember talking with his grown kids about this. And he was changed. And it testified to the truth of his faith. And so when I spoke up here about his life, I could say, I know that he believed. I know that he trusted Christ. And I know that one day I will see Stuart again. And it's that foundation that Stuart had relatively late in his life. But he could then, from that foundation, live out that life of a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. As we finish up verse 5, this will continue when we continue in the text next week, but I want to explain it a little bit this morning. Paul ends with, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul wants to assure these people that what they believe was true. And one of the pieces of evidence that he uses is the integrity that he and his team had. That what they said and how they lived were one thing. And this is a part of assuring them that this is the truth. That faith in Jesus is the way. And he uses his he uses his actions to say, you, you weren't tricked by a false teacher. And therefore, they can have assurance of their faith. But we'll look at that more as the book of 1 Thessalonians continues. Let me close with a couple points of application this morning. And I want to word this in a question for you that you can ask yourself. What should we focus on in the midst of difficulty? Whether that's difficulty in our lives or difficulty where we perceive out in our culture and in our world, where should we focus? Our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope. As a part of that, I want you to be thinking about what is difficult about our community? You know, it's easy to see how, how being in a poor area would create some challenges. But I think sometimes we're blind to the challenges of our own lives and our own communities. Let me read you from a later excerpt from this book, Church in Hard Places. And this is written by a pastor who works in a very poor area. Okay? But he's going to be talking about a place like ours. <laughs> he says this, When I listen to pastors battling away around Europe and the States in well-off areas, I break out in a cold sweat. How do you evangelize in an area where everybody has a decent-paying job, a nice place to live, and possibly a car or two in the driveway? How do you break through the intellectual pride of a worldview that thinks religion is beneath them and that science has all the answers? How do you witness in an area where the average house price is more than $400,000? How do you talk to a guy who feels no need for Christ because he is distracted by his materialism? How do you make it to work? How do you make it work in an area filled with nice, law-abiding citizens who don't cheat on their wives, beat their kids, and spend evenings stoned on the sofa wait, watching reality television? 
Now that's hard. In some ways, it's harder, harder, brutal, even. <laughs> Part of this is seeing the own idols in our own culture. And as we see those idols, as we seek to break into those places, again, where do we focus? Our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness in hope. Because no matter what's going on around inside you, no matter what's out there, you have control over this. Number two, our solid rock in difficulty is our secure salvation. If you've repented of your sins and placed your personal trust in Christ, you are secure in that salvation. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. In fact, Paul tells you you are loved and chosen. And even in a world like the city of Thessalonica back then, full of sin and chaos, your God has saved you. And your God has loved you. And your God has chosen you and holds you in his arms. And so as we face difficulty today, it's pretty different than what they did back then. But when we face difficulty today, we can live out our faith. We can boldly live in the way that God has called us to because we stand on the foundation of our secure salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the book of 1 Thessalonians. That as Paul celebrated the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope of the Thessalonian church, that we would aspire to that same thing. That no matter what's going on around us, because we have been loved and chosen by God, we can live out our faith, we can live out our love, and we can endure because of the hope we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.